0: In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, verse 18, through chapter 19, verse
1: 25. Last time, we uh, really jumped in feet first. It's one of those evenings we took, I think, five verses and really spent the whole period of time on that. And uh, I'm hoping from all the reactions I've had. I hope it wasn't too scary. I hope on the one hand it seemed real, and on the other hand you didn't leave here terrified. You know, it reminds me in a sense of the guy that was a ventriloquist. He had excellent skills as a ventriloquist, but he's going broke. His dummy was all tattered and beat up and useless, and it just there was just no market for ventriloquists. And his buddy said, hey, that's no problem. Why don't you go into, into seances and be a medium? He said, hey, that's a great idea. So he... Uh, Put out a sign and so forth. First guy comes in. He says, well, what do you charge? He says, well, if you want to talk to a departed loved one, it's 50 bucks. If you want to do it while I'm drinking a glass of water, it's $75. <laughs> I think my wife is right. I have a perverse sense of humor. <laughs> you pray for him right. But speaking of not getting the point, I hope that... Uh, Isaiah 14 wasn't too rough last time. What Isaiah is doing is sweeping right around the Gentile nations around Israel. And uh, we, of course, are right in the middle of his uh, discussion of Babylon. Right in the middle of that discussion, of course, we have this excerpt that we spent time on last time, uh, the origin and uh, career, if you will, of Lucifer. But that brought us down to verse 18. We'll continue from there tonight. All the kings of the nations, even all of them, lie in glory, every one of them in his own house. But thou art cast out of thy sepulchre like an abominable branch. That's an interesting phrase, the abominable branch. That's in contrast to the branch of Isaiah 11, if you recall. The tzamek, the, the netzer, the, the uh, title of none other than Jesus Christ. But this is obviously in contrast to him. Who cast out like an abominable branch. And like arraignment of those that are slain, thrust through the sword that go down to the stones of the pit like a carcass trampled under feet. Thou shalt not be joined with them in burial, because thou hast destroyed thy land and slain thy people. The seed of evildoers shall never be renowned, or more properly never be named. Prepare slaughter for his children for the iniquity of their fathers, that they do not rise, nor possess the land, nor fill the face of the world with cities. For I will rise up against them, saith the Lord of hosts, and cut off from Babylon the name... The remnant, the son, the nephew, saith the Lord. And I will make it a possession for the porcupine, or properly a bittern, which is actually a water bird. Uh, But in any case, uh, make it a possession for whatever that animal is. And pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, saith the Lord of hosts. A broad castigation and judgment on Babylon. You can uh, torture the text either way. You can point to local applications. But on the other hand, we're also in a sweep that speaks of the day of the Lord. And that will become very clear as we go a little further here. Anyways, that wraps up. Babylon now, he takes uh, the next uh, four verses. Uh, Isaiah focuses again on Assyria. The Lord of hosts has sworn saying, verse 24, Surely, as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. And as I have purposed, so it shall stand. That's quite a verse. That really applies to everything the Lord says. Amos tells us that he does nothing but that which he reveals to his servants, the prophets. What God says, he does. And every time I have made a mistake, and there have been lots of them in the Bible, it's because I didn't take it literally enough. So when you get those verses 24, I really like that. You see, the Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. And we should keep that in mind as we go through the Scripture, Old and New Testament, as God describes what He's going to do, that there is going to be a reckoning, there is going to be a judgment, there is going to be a conclusion. It will not be business as usual. We need to realize God means what He says and says what He means. But now verse 25, He continues, "...that I will break the Assyrian in my land and upon my mountains, tread them underfoot. Then shall his yoke depart from off of them, and his burden depart from off their shoulders." This is the purpose that is purposed upon the Assyrian Empire. No, no. So, what it says? Upon the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out upon all the nations, which gives you a clear indication that this does not just refer to Assyria itself. The title, the Assyrian is one of the titles that the Old Testament uses of the coming world leader. Does that mean he's of an Assyrian background? Not necessarily. What it means is the word the Assyrian has become a title, a global leader. And uh, so be alert to that. You'll find that show up all through the Old Testament, the Assyrian. Isaiah will have more to say about him later. So I point that out to you. You can check Isaiah 10, uh, 25 through 27, where that came up, but also Micah 5 and uh, Zephaniah 2. You'll find that phrase popping up again and again. And where he talks here in verse 26 about the whole earth, that's the tip-off, we're talking about the day of the Lord. We're talking about the day of the Lord. Daniel 11, Isaiah 30, we'll deal with a lot with it there. Micah 5, Daniel 8, and so on. Verse 27, For the Lord of hosts hath purposed, and who shall annul it? And his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? Okay, now the chapter will conclude with five verses about Philistia. And uh, while Philistia is, of course, the Philistines, they're of Egyptian origin, right on the edge, on the eastern edge of uh, Egypt, on the west coast there, if you will. Philistia in the Greek was Palestina. From which the Latin is Palestine. It's from that group that the name Palestine for the whole area of the land comes from. But again, don't confuse that. This really refers to specifically the Philistines. Verse 28 In the year that 8 King Ahaz died, was this burden Rejoice not, thou, O Palestine, or O Philistia, because the rod of him who smote thee is broken, for out of the serpent's root shall come forth an adder. And his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. And the firstborn of the poor shall feed, and the needy shall lie down in safety, and I will kill thy root with famine, and he shall slay thy remnant. Howl, O gate, cry, O city, thou, O Philistia, art dissolved, for there shall come from the north a smoke, and none shall be alone in his appointed times. What shall one then answer, the messengers of the nations, that the Lord hath founded Zion, and the poor of his people shall trust in it? Okay, a sweep against uh, Philistia does have an interesting phrase there, for out of the serpent's root. Remember we talked about the root of David, and we also speak of the title of Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. And last time we talked about the seed of the serpent. And here we have not only the seed of the serpent, we have the root of the serpent. So we have this sinister backdrop on these nations. Continuing. Some of this could be very locally applied. Tilgath-Pileser had died, and Shalmaneser and then Sargon had risen, and and much of this can be viewed as having been fulfilled historically. At the same time, there also may be an end-time coloration to it. All of this will come up again later in Isaiah. Chapter 15 and 16, now he turns his attention to Moab. Now, Moab and Ammon and Edom are three ancient names that you and I know today as Jordan. We know it as Jordan. When the British established the Israel uh, partition, they created two countries of roughly very large, equal size, Israel and Transjordan. What most people don't know is in 1922, Israel negotiated away a major portion of their land in exchange for peace. So this land for peace idea was tried back in the 20s, and obviously has had not much of an impact. Uh, Israel's attitude today is if you want land for peace, you've got the land, we've got the peace, we'll trade but uh, that's, a, that's not what uh, Baker and those guys seem to have in mind. Any case, we're now going to talk about Moab. It's interesting how, uh, you know, we reach in our history and try to take pride in our origins. Well, if you're from Moab, you've got a problem. Because Moab descended from the eldest son of Lot, which resulted from incest with Lot's daughter. That's not a very proud heritage, I guess. If you recall in, uh, in Genesis 19, the two daughters of Lot got him drunk. And they each slept with him, getting pregnant. The oldest had uh, Moab as a son, and the younger one had Ammon. So Moabites and Ammonites came from that ancestral relationship, which is uh, pretty grim. Now, Moab, historically, pretended to be a friend of, of Israel, but then... Um, uh, really ended up turning on them. And symbolically, if you're into typology or, or spiritual perspective, that whole issue seems to suggest uh, having a profession without legitimate claim. And uh, if you study that, the history of uh, the Moabites. Moab uh, also emerges in Numbers, if you recall, when um, the king of Moab was a guy by the name of Balak. And in Numbers, we have this fascinating character surface by the name of Balaam. And he was a Gentile prophet. And he's an enigma because he does prophesy, and yet he's a, a strange character. And uh, Balak, the king of Moab, hires Balaam to curse Israel. And uh, this is Numbers uh, 0, 22, 23, and 31, for those of you who really want to dig into it. Balaam is rebuked by his own donkey, as you know. And uh, every time I read that story, it reminds me of some of my staff meetings of the past. <laughs> In any case, Balaam uh, is hired to curse Israel, and he refuses to do that because God uh, tells him not to. So he doesn't curse Israel. keeps blessing him, and that frustrates his employer, Balak. But what he finally does do is he counsels Balak on how to defeat Israel. He says all you have to do to defeat Israel is get their God to turn on them, and the way you do that is to have their men mix with your pretty girls. So what you do is get all your most attractive young ladies on the border have mixed with the Israelis, and when they uh, uh, when they do that, God will turn on them. And of course, the girls do just that. The men mix with them and uh, get enticed by them, and uh, what Balaam did not count on was God's grace. He, didn't, he assumed that God didn't have the ability to show his grace. Grace, But in any case, uh, that's an important event, not so much just for the Old Testament, but you won't understand the letter that Jesus Christ dictates or writes to Pergamos in in, uh, Revelation chapter 2, which is marriage to the world. And in that letter, Jesus makes reference to this whole story of Balaam and Balak and the Moabites. And you won't understand the tone of the letter unless you do your little homework in Numbers uh, 22, 23, 31, that whole story of Balaam and Balak. So um, we, we won't take the time tonight to get into it, but that's enough. If you're interested, you can track that down. The other place Moab shows up is there's a gal by the name Naomi. She and her husband and their two sons are, are they're suffering from famine in Bethlehem, so she moves to Moab. Her husband dies. The two sons have taken uh, Moabite as uh, girls for wives, and um, the sons also die. So here is Naomi with two daughters-in-law. But also about this time, she's destitute, things are better in Bethlehem, so she's going to go home. And you all know the story, neither of the daughters want to leave her. She finally insists they do, one does, but Ruth refuses to leave, clings to Naomi, and they have the incredible love story in the book of Ruth, a four-chapter book that is an incredible love story, even by secular literature standards, but also the key to understanding Revelation 5. So, the whole uh, background and study of Ruth, I commend to you. But that's again, remember, she was a Moabitess. She's a Gentile bride that shows up in the family tree of Jesus Christ, being the grandparents, great grandparents, whatever, of David. And uh, when we celebrate the shepherd's fields at Christmas time, those fields were probably the fields of Ruth and Boaz, as portrayed in Ruth uh, chapter 4. So, it's a worthwhile study of Ruth and Naomi and all of that. It's interesting that when David was fleeing Saul, that he took his parents and sent them to Moab for their safety. Saul was after David. You all know the story. It ever occur to you that his parents would be in trouble, right? With the king being after David. Why would David feel that his parents would be secure in Moab? Because he was a descendant of the Moabites in the sense of Ruth. See? Interesting. So anyway, that's a little background on Moab. But Moab uh, pretends to be a friend of Israel, but really isn't, and turns on them, becomes Israel's enemy at several several occasions in the 11th hour. And so we have the judgment of Moab in uh, Isaiah 15 and 16. We'll whip through it. You might also make a note for those of you who want to do some extra study. This same judgment is a major subject of Jeremiah chapter 48. So Isaiah deals with it here in chapter 15 and 16. Jeremiah deals with it 100 years later in uh, Jeremiah chapter 48. But jumping into Isaiah 15, verse 1, the burden of Moab, the Massa, the heavy uh, judgment of uh, Moab. Because in the night of, our, of Moab is laid waste and brought to silence. Because in the night here of Moab is laid waste and brought to silence. He has gone up to Baeth and to Dibon. Baeth, by the way, was a temple of Baal, by the way, and uh, Dibbon is interesting, just to put a footnote there. It was at Dibbon they discovered the so-called Moabite stone, a very famous find in archaeology. It's famous for two reasons. It was the first recorded alphabet, an alphabet in contrast to a pictograph. The Moabite stone. It's also famous because the records of the Moabite stone are uh, supportive or consistent with the biblical records. So the Moabite stone is something in your archaeology books you, you can make a note of. It was found at Dibbon. In any case, moving on. He has gone to Abiath and to Dibbon, the high places, to weep. Moab shall wail over Nebo. Remember, Nebo is where Moses was buried. And uh, over Medeba. Uh, Nebo is mentioned in Numbers 32 and 33, 1 Chronicles 5, Jeremiah 48, of course, and so on. Medeba is mentioned in Numbers 21 and uh, uh, Joshua 13, 1 Chronicles 19. Uh, You can dig those out either through a Bible atlas and or a uh, concordance if you're interested in digging into those places. But they're all obviously places in the area called Moab, east of the Dead Sea. On all their heads shall be baldness, every beard cut off. What that refers to is mourning. Shaving was a sign of mourning in that culture. In their streets they shall gird themselves with sackcloth on the tops of the houses, and in their streets everyone shall wail, weeping abundantly, and Heshbon shall cry out. Heshbon is about 20 miles east of the Jordan, just to give you a rough feeling for the geography here. Heshbon shall cry out, and Ile, and their voice shall be heard even to Jahaz. Therefore, the armed soldiers of Moab shall cry out, his life shall be grievous unto him. My heart shall cry out for Moab, his fugitives shall flee unto Zor, to eglath Sheleshia Zor, you recall, was one of the cities that was spared at the pleading of uh, Lot. Remember when the angels were going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, the five cities? Uh, Lot, get out of there. Well, Lot talked them into sparing the one little city, Zor. And that's why it may sound familiar to you from Genesis uh, 19. And for by the ascent of Luhith with weeping shall they go up, for in the way of another place I'm probably mispronouncing, uh, Horanaim, uh, they shall raise up a cry of destruction, for the waters of Nimrim shall be desolate, for the hay is withered away, the grass faileth, there is no green thing. Therefore the abundance they have gotten and that which they have laid up shall they carry away to the brook of the willows. For cry is gone round about the borders of Moab, the wailing of it into Eglaim, and its howling unto Elim. The waters of Dimon shall be full of blood, and I will bring more upon Dimon, lions upon him that escapeth of Moab, and upon the remnant of the land. And he's going to continue some more here, but uh, obviously um, Moab's uh, primacy of those days has been long eclipsed, is now vast waste. In fact, one of the most interesting things, if you take a flight in a fairly good altitude over Israel, It's really provocative to see the Jordan River. You see up north the Sea of Galilee. You see the Jordan River go all the way down to the Dead Sea. West of the Jordan River is fertile farmland. It's green. It's cultivated. It's rich. And east of that river is desolation, just raw desert. And it's a shock to actually visually see what some effort and uh, commitment has done to the difference in the land. Because prior to 48, you could look at that and see it was just a mix of unreclaimed swamp and desert, two extremes. And now when you fly over that, uh, even in a casual flight, you you, you just can't uh, believe the contrast. So Moab is desolate. However, let me not finish with Moab. Moab is obviously under judgment, and yet Moab and Ammon and Edom, these three places are going to escape the dominion of the Antichrist, the coming world leader. And that's in Daniel 8. It's very strange. They somehow, of all the whole world that's under his dominion, they escape. And the reason they escape is they provide a refuge for the remnant. And we'll see some hints of that as we go on here. Chapter 16, verse 1. Send ye the Lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah to the wilderness unto the mount of the daughter of Zion. Don't confuse that. Sending the Lamb makes it sound Jesus, the Lamb of God. Not exactly what the deal is is under David and Solomon, Moab was put under tribute. They uh, had to uh, supply 100,000 lambs and the the wool of 100,000 rams as tribute to Israel. So it was like a tax. And uh, it's about the time that Isaiah is writing that Moab is rebelling against that and refusing to do that. And you can find this in 2 Kings 3 and 2 Chronicles uh, 20, because they are revolting during Isaiah's day and they are joining with the Ammonites in this rebellion. And Isaiah is telling them, don't do that. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah. Now, Selah is a synonym for Petra, also called Basra. And we're going to talk a lot about that later in Isaiah, because that's the place that Jesus Christ is seen coming in a second coming. Stained with blood. Isaiah 63, for those of you that want to peek ahead, but we'll deal with that when we get there. The land of Selah, to the wilderness, unto the mount of the daughter of Zion. For it shall be that like a wandering bird cast out of the nest, so shall the daughters of Moab shall be at the fords of Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment, make thy shadow as the night in the midst of noonday. Hide the outcast, betray not him that wandereth. There's going to be a refuge there, obviously, of the remnant. And we'll talk about that as that develops. Verse 4. Let mine outcasts dwell with thee, Moab. Be thou a covert, that is a covering, to them from the face of the spoiler. Spoiler here isn't like him that taketh spoil. It's the old English use. For the extortioner is at an end, the spoiler seetheth, and the oppressors are consumed out of the land interesting situation. We'll get into this uh, later in Isaiah, but basically the scenario that uh, the possibility that uh, Hosea chapter 5 refers to, where Hosea 6 is the prayer, where Israel, the remnant, will flee uh, to this area. And when the Antichrist has his forces arrayed against Jerusalem, uh, why would he shift his forces against Edom and Moab? Because that's where the remnant have flown in accordance with Christ's instructions in Matthew 24, and uh, they uh, petition. I guess I've gotten into it. Hosea chapter (laughs) 5. Hosea chapter 5, last verse, God is speaking through Hosea. He says, I will go and return. It's verse 15. Hosea 5.15, I will go and return to my place. What does that mean? How can God return to His place? He must have left it. Huh? I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense. In a number of places in the Old Testament, in the Torah and here, the word offense is singular, specific. What offense is that? The rejection of him as the Messiah. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. And this is the prayer they're going to pray. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he hath torn, he will heal us, he hath smitten us up, he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, on the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Jesus Christ was rejected in Matthew 12, when the Pharisees attributed his powers to Satan. That's what gives rise to the unpardonable sin. And that's when he says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, there will be no sign given it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. And that obviously is fulfilled in his resurrection. Jonah spent three days and three nights in the fish, son of man, three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Obviously a prophecy of his resurrection, but there are some scholars that believe it has a double reference, that it also refers to the prerequisite condition of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Not the rapture. He comes back twice, once for the church, once for Israel. When he comes back for Israel, it'll be in response to their petition to ask him. And when they do, three days And he interrupts the attack at Edom and Petra. And Isaiah 63 describes his physical appearance where he's bloodstained, having fought on behalf of his own. And this is what is the reference here in Isaiah 16. We'll deal with it in more detail as we get into more detail in later in Isaiah. Petra or Selah refers to the rocky parts of Moab, and it's both a specific place, but it's also a region. Yeah, verse 4, you see, it's a petition to take care of his outcasts, the remnant. Betray not him that wandereth, verse 3. Let mine outcast dwell with thee, Moab. Be a covert to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioners is at an end, and the spoiler ceases, and the oppressors are consumed out of the land. And in mercy shall the throne be established, and, it shall, and he shall sit up... A- upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and swiftly executing righteousness. Here's a reference to the tabernacle of David. Pause here and turn to Acts 15. We're all familiar with Acts 15 where Paul and Barnabas are raising the issue, does a Gentile have to be a Jew to become saved? The Jewish leadership, the uh, apostles that were Jewish, that were Christian, took for granted that they were still under the old pattern. If a Gentile wanted to be saved, he should become a Jew and then accept Christ. Paul says, no way a Gentile can be saved. And there's a big brouhah. It goes on for 13 years until finally they have this uh, brouhah come to Jerusalem, the the so-called, you know, the council there. It's always presented as if they're going to make the final adjudication. I don't think that's really what's going on. If you know Paul at all, had they not agreed with him, he would have gone on and done what he was going to do anyway. But uh, they fortunately agree with him, so that issue goes away. But the point is, their issue here is not just, does a Gentile have to become a Jew? That is the issue here. And, of course, after Peter does his uh, thing and Paul does his, then James responds on behalf of the council. James, the Lord's brother, is the leader here. Verse 13, after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God first did visit the nations to take out of them a people for his name. What's he referring to? Right now, the church. See, God first will visit the nations, that is Gentiles, and take a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, after this, after what? After he calls out a people out of the Gentiles, out of the nations. After this, I will return, Jesus says. And we'll build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again its ruins, and I will set it up, and so on. He goes on. The point is, Acts 15 deals with two issues. Gee, does a Gentile have to be a Jew to be saved? Of course not. And that's what they conclude. That's what the chapter's all about. We're generally familiar with that. What we also miss, though, there was a second issue that was bothering them. Because if a Gentile does not have to become a Jew, what's to become of Israel? That's the implied concern that's dealt with here.
0: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry.